0: The uh, Foreign Relations Committee of the United States Senate will come to order. Had a little trouble with the chairs here. The chairman's promised me that things will get the incoming chairman has promised me things will get better when he becomes chairman. We'll hold you to that, Senator Menendez. Thank you, and good morning, everyone. Um, and uh, we're here for a very important uh, nomination hearing, and that is the uh, nomination of Honorable uh, Linda Thomas Greenfield to be the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. And uh, we welcome you. Assuming that's you down there, that's a long ways down. At least I've got a chair where I can see where the D is now. Um, we welcome you, and thank you for your willingness to serve, and of course your family also, since, uh, uh, since they uh, obviously will share in the sacrifices for the job. So thank you for that. We have two very distinguished uh, members of the United States Senate here to introduce uh, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, uh, and one of them is uh, one of our own committee members, uh, Senator Coons. I'm going to postpone my opening statement and ask Senator Menendez to do the same until after Senator Coons and Senator Cassidy give their remarks. And so uh, with that, uh, I would uh, welcome Senator Cassidy, if he would, as our guest, uh, take the floor, please. Uh,
1: th- thank you, Chairman Rich, and soon-to-be Chairman Menendez and members of the committee. It is a great honor to introduce somebody from my state and my home parish as President Biden's nominee to be the United States Representative to the United Nations, and the representative of the United States in the the Security Council, Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Ambassador Thomas-Greenfield is currently serving on the uh, Biden transition team and was previously the head of the Africa practice for the Albright-Stonebridge Group. The ambassador's career has been one of distinguishment as a member of the diplomatic corps of the United States. She has held high-level positions in the State Department and has served abroad as well. The last position held was the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. She has vast experience as a Foreign Service Officer with numerous publications, is a Distinguished Fellow in African Studies at the Georgetown University. I'm proud to say she's a graduate of Louisiana State University, my alma mater, and the University of Wisconsin, which might be Ron Johnson's alma mater. Um, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield has dedicated her, her career to serve our nation. In addition to her accomplishments as U.S. Representative Abroad, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield holds numerous honors and awards, and in 2016 even had a school named after her, the Linda Thomas Greenfield Preparatory School, and her career would be an inspiration to any child thinking that her or his trajectory could be unlimited. Her years of service in the United States and abroad, in addition to her accomplishments, uh, shows that she has a willingness to work with all parties towards common goals, which seems to be a prerequisite for the position to which she is nominated. In addition to her impressive career, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield is uh, married to Lafayette Mastine greenfield and is the loving mother, I presume loving, (laughs) to Lindsay and Lafayette II. She enjoys cooking, and I'm told is an expert on Louisiana cuisine. To represent the United States before the United Nations and the National Security Council, you need a willingness to advance your goals, our goals as a nation, and promote democracy across the, across the globe. Reviewing her past work, it is clear that Ambassador Thomas Greenfield is eminently qualified to this position. I look forward to the committee and the Senate approving her nomination. Thank you. I yield.
0: Thank you, Senator Cassidy. We appreciate that. Senator Coons.
2: Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Menendez. It's my honor to join Senator Cassidy in introducing to this committee Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, President Biden's nominee to represent our nation at the United Nations in New York. Uh, Our country faces an unprecedented series of crises and challenges both at home and abroad. A global pandemic and economic recession, a reckoning around inequality and injustice, unprecedented levels of displacement and violence around the world, and the existential threat of climate change. And in this moment, I believe our leadership, credibility, and values uh, are at task and are at test around the world and our relationships are strained. Uh, We need to ask ourselves who we want to be and what example we hope to set for the rest of the world. And as our face at the United Nations, uh, the United States needs a leader who can advance not just our interests but our values, restore our alliances, rebuild bridges, and develop relationships that allow us to manage disagreements, unpack complex challenges, and inspire a next generation of leaders. That's why I am so excited to have the honor of joining with Senator Cassidy in introducing Ambassador Thomas Greenfield. She is no stranger to this committee, the diplomatic corps, or the U.S. national security community. Over the course of her 35 years of service to our nation, under administrations both Republican and Democrat, she's earned this community's respect and admiration, so much so she's famously known in places around the world by just three letters, LTG. Um, She is joined today and has long been supported by her loving family, her husband Lafayette, her daughter Lindsay, and her son Lafayette II, known as Deuce, and we are grateful for their support for her career and her service. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield represents both the promise and progress of America. Raised in the segregated Deep South, graduated from a segregated high school, one of just a few African-American women to attend and graduate from Louisiana State University, She would, in 1982, join the Foreign Service after teaching political science at Bucknell um, to become one of far too few black professional female diplomats in our Foreign Service. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield has lived the ideals of our nation, uh, even at a time when it was falling short of our uh, founding ideals, and has spent her career blazing trails. She understands that true patriotism is constituted in pushing your country to be the best version of itself, and striving for that more perfect union. She is the right person at the right time, not just because of her qualifications, her deep global experience, serving us in more than six countries around the world and as the DG of the State Department, but because of her personal style of diplomacy, called gumbo diplomacy by her, inspired by her native Louisiana, as a way to reach out and connect with others and break down barriers, to connect with people and solve problems. I saw firsthand in Liberia when we first met why she's been called the people's ambassador. She's never met someone she can't turn into a friend. She is also battle-tested and tough as nails, having overseen our response as a nation to some of the most complex and grinding crises in the world. She brings a deep experience, a diverse perspective, and a unique and warm personality to the challenges of U.S. foreign policy at a time when we need new thinking. So Ambassador Thomas-Greenfield represents, in my view, the very best of our nation, and I urge my colleagues to support her nomination and swift confirmation through the United States Senate. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you, Senator Kuntz. We appreciate that. And again, uh, we welcome you, Ambassador uh, Thomas Greenfield. I have just a few remarks, and I'm going to yield to Senator Menendez. Uh, This is a really important uh, position that uh, you've been appointed to. More than an institution, the United United Nations is supposed to support the ideals that, build upon, that are built upon American core values. The pursuit of peace and prosperity, a commitment to the rule of law, the protection of human rights, and the advancement of fundamental freedoms. Unfortunately, not all member states share our values. Uh, and more and more, it seems like uh, pursuing these values is uh, becoming uh, more difficult for the United Nations. Increasingly though, uh, through the malign influence and actions of these members, the U.N. is becoming less of an ideal and more of a challenge. Despite the fact that the United States is by far the largest donor to the United Nations, the Chinese Communist Party is attempting to reshape the U.N. to serve the needs of the party, and it has had some successes in that regard. Over the last few years, we have seen the Chinese Communist Party ramp up its influence efforts by using the UN and its leaders to promote its One Belt, One Road initiative, adding the CCP specific language uh, into UN resolutions and other documents, and by rigging elections in favor to replace, to replace uh, Chinese uh, or to place Chinese nationals uh, at the head of UN specialized agencies. The result is a UN that can be used by the CCP to silence Chinese political dissent, advance its foreign policy aims, promote its own authoritarian values, and even set technical standards and norms that will define the technologies of the future. The CCP's malign influence across multilateral institutions has become perhaps most visible at the World Health Organization, as the Biden administration seeks to re-engage with the WHO, it must keep in mind the CCP manipulation of the organization. The CCP continues to hide the origins of COVID-19 by hindering WHO fact-finding missions, promoting the fake theory that COVID originated somewhere other than in Wuhan province, China, and promoting promoting its unreliable vaccines through COVAX. The United States, alongside its democratic allies and partners, must work to counter the Chinese government's malign influence at the WHO and across the UN systems, and protect the integrity of the world's multilateral institutions. I look forward to hearing how you plan to address this challenge. On the humanitarian front, we've seen China and Russia work together to hinder global efforts to seek peace and protect human security, including efforts to close life-saving border crossings into Syria. If confirmed, one of your most important roles will be representing the United States at the Security Council. Unfortunately, the Security Council has failed to make significant progress on some of the most pressing international crises, including the threat posed by Iran's nuclear weapons program and support for terrorism. The failure of the JCPOA and the United Nations uh, uh, Concurrent Resolution 2231 to contain uh, Iran are clear. Neither have accomplished their stated goals. Uh, I, we all, everybody in this room knows that uh, President Biden has indicated he wants to get back into the JCPOA. Uh, we all have strong feelings on that. I sincerely hope that as we uh, proceed forward, we can, on a bipartisan basis, do better than we did with the initial JCPOA. Uh, we're, we're right up against many of the sunsets imposed under UN uh, Uh, Concurrent Resolution 2231. The Conventional Arms Embargo has already passed, and we face the expiration of the Ballistics Missile Embargo in 2023. Most concerning, we face the termination of UN involvement in Iran's nuclear program in four years, in 2025. The arms embargo needs to be reimposed, and these other nearsighted sunsets must be extended for the security of the United States. And for the rest of the world. And again, I hope we can work together. I know there is a diverse feeling on this committee, but I think this committee has uh, some very important things that uh, can help the Biden administration as it moves forward to reengage in Iran, assuming that's uh, the goal that it has. Uh, let Let me turn to the elephant in the room. Uh, 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 Ms. Greenfield, Ms. Greenfield, first of all, thank you for meeting with me yesterday. I thought that was a very productive meeting that we had. Uh, I'm sorry that you haven't read my China report. I suspect that has changed by now. Uh, but uh, in any event, uh, uh, you gave a speech in October 20th, I believe, of 2019, which has become quite the buzz in these hallways in recent days, as I explained to you. Uh, we're going to give you every opportunity to uh, speak to that today. I think there were some editorials even written overnight that uh, were not very complimentary of that. I can tell you that there isn't a person sitting in this room that hasn't given a speech that they don't wish they had back. Uh, I, I personally am not going to hold one speech against somebody, but you are going to have to speak to that, and I suspect uh, that, that you're ready to do so. So we want to give you every opportunity to do that. Uh, we're anxious to hear what you have to say. And uh, I look forward to hearing from you how uh, you'll be supporting U.S. leadership uh, uh, in the U.N. and particularly at the Security Council. So, with that, again, thank you for your willingness to serve, Senator Menendez.
3: Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for expediting this hearing of Ambassador Thomas Greenfield. So, I appreciate your continued work in this regard. Uh, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, congratulations on your nomination. Welcome to your fourth Senate confirmation hearing. Um, It's deeply reassuring that President Biden nominated you, a diplomat of immense expertise and skill, to be the next U.S. permanent representative to the United Nations. I believe you are superbly qualified to advance U.S. interests at the U.N. And we are deeply grateful for your willingness and that of your family uh, to return to serve our country at this critical time. We're at a pivotal moment, an opportunity to repair and restore our place in the world. But we have to be honest about the challenges we face, including at the United Nations, in light of the Trump administration's abandonment of U.S. leadership. Over the last four years, the U.S. has accrued more than $1 billion in peacekeeping arrears, tried to pull out of the World Health Organization in the middle of a pandemic, undermined international protections for women, girls, and LGBTI individuals, defunded or cut funding to key agencies like the UN Population Fund and the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Meanwhile, China and other authoritarian countries have filled the vacuum left by our absence. So, Ambassador, I hope you will agree that we cannot simply return to business as usual at the UN. We must actively work to repair and strengthen that which has been undermined, including strong support for human rights and democracy. And in the wake of the devastating COVID-19 pandemic, restoring U.S. leadership at the World Health Organization and other international health organizations. As someone who believes in a tough, concerted approach to Iran, it was disheartening to watch the Trump administration alienate our allies with unilateral statements and actions. This, self, uh, this isolating, self-defeating strategy culminated in a disastrous attempt to extend the UN arms embargo on Iran, where the U.S. could muster only one, one other Security Council vote and a failed effort to invoke the snapback of sanctions under the JCPOA. So I'm very interested to hear how the Biden administration intends to re-engage our allies and hold Iran accountable, both for its nuclear program and its regional aggression. Among your most difficult tasks will be to regain U.S. leverage and influence in the Security Council, where Russia and China have used their veto powers and ability to bully non-permanent members to stymie the Council's work. They have shielded abusive regimes like the government of Burma, which committed genocide against the Rohingya, the criminal dictatorship of Nicolás Maduro, who has unleashed a campaign of crimes against humanity, resulting in the flight of more than 5.4 million Venezuelans from their country. Russia and China have not been content to simply protect Bashar al-Assad from accountability for his crimes against the Syrian people. Russia has threatened a veto on UN-Syrian assistance to reduce the border crossings through which assistance can reach rebel-held Syria to only one. This has made it even harder to obtain desperately needed food, shelter, and medical assistance for innocent civilians. I strongly urge you to do everything possible to keep this vital lifeline open upon your confirmation. I'm also concerned by the way China has sought to increase its role at the United Nations and in other international organizations. Not because China does not deserve an appropriate role commensurate with its presence on the world stage, but because of its attempts to pervert and distort the core values that make the UN's work so important. China's efforts to insert Xi Jinping thought into UN resolutions has undermined the UN's commitment to human rights. This is the same leader responsible for what the State Department has determined to be acts of genocide committed against 1.8 million Uyghur men, women, and children in internment facilities. When China has asserted leadership and taken on leadership roles in UN bodies, these organizations have ceased to uphold the values and interests of the broader international community. Bit by bit, step by step, they are instead made to reflect China's unilateral priorities, often at the expense of human rights. And for all the bluster and tough guy rhetoric, the record of the Trump administration to counter Beijing's efforts has been one of abject failure. Meanwhile, the net effect of the Trump administration's policies towards North Korea has been to gut the UN sanctions regime painstakingly put in place to counter North Korean provocations and its nuclear missile programs. Today, thanks to former Secretary Pompeo and President Trump, the sanctions regime is on life support. Last year, North Korea conducted ballistic missile tests, a clear violation of UN Security Council resolutions, and the administration did nothing. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on how to address this pressing concern. As you have witnessed firsthand, the United Nations plays a crucial role in the maintenance of peace and security across Africa. It supports six UN peacekeeping missions already, but there are other ongoing conflicts that also demand the urgent involvement of the UN. I am thinking in particular of Cameroon, Ethiopia, and Mozambique, where a failure to properly address crises have already generated large refugee flows and, in some cases, drawn neighboring countries into active conflict. And finally, one area I hope that you and the Biden administration will remain closely engaged on is preventing the United Nations and other affiliated organizations from being used as a forum for bias attacks on Israel. Such actions make a negotiated two-state solution more difficult to achieve. After four tumultuous exhausting years, the United States needs renewal and engagement with key alliances and institutions. If confirmed, the world will be closely watching how we achieve this at the United Nations, and I look forward to hearing your views, how you would achieve that. Thank you very
0: much. Thank you, uh, Senator Menendez, and uh, uh, Ambassador Greenfield, we will turn to you. I think uh, people's concern about, what we've, we've read not just your speech of October 19th, but the other ones that you've made, which we're substantially better in many regards. Uh, I think probably the biggest problem with the October 19th speech was the, was the uh, lack of acknowledgement of the malign activities of China. So you're going to have your opportunity today to, uh, to backfill that hole, and with that, uh, the uh, floor is yours.
4: I think I'm on. Thank you, Chairman Risch and Ranking Member Menendez and distinguished members of of this committee, I'd like to offer special gratitude to Senator Cassidy, who has left us, uh, from my home state of Louisiana, and Senator Coons uh, for their generous introductions. I'm deeply honored to appear before you all as President Biden's nominee to serve as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. And I'm so grateful to the President for placing his trust in me. My husband, Lafayette Greenfield, a retired Foreign Service Specialist, is here with me today, along with my son, Lafayette, who you've heard we call Deuce. Our daughter, Lindsay, is serving our country currently in La Paz, Bolivia. I'm so proud of them all and so grateful for their love and their support and sacrifice as I take on this important position. I would also like to thank my extended family, and that includes all of uh, the members of the Department of State, who have been sending me so many kind messages of support. When I joined the Foreign Service in 1982, I was not the norm. Many of my colleagues had gone to Ivy League schools, and I'd gone to segregated high schools, as you've already heard, and to LSU as a consequence of a lawsuit. Not to mention, I was joining an organization facing two class action lawsuits that applied to me, one led by black officers in the Foreign Service and the other by women. And yet, I had an extraordinary 35-year career that culminated as the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. To me, that represents the progress and the promise of America. Still, I never expected that I would have the chance to step into the shoes of so many luminaries, leaders like Jean Kirkpatrick, who was the permanent representative when I first joined the service? Are my own mentor, Ambassador Ed Perkins, the first African American ambassador to South Africa, a UN ambassador, and a giant among diplomats? Are the iconic Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, followed most recently by four other women Ambassadors Susan Rice, Samantha Powers, Nikki Haley, and Kelly Kraft, my most recent predecessor? Like my mentors, role models, and predecessors, I strongly believe diplomacy is an irreplaceable tool in the work of advancing America's interests and building a better world. Throughout my career, from Jamaica to Nigeria, Pakistan to Switzerland, and as ambassador to Liberia, I've learned that effective diplomacy means more than shaking hands and staging photo ops. It means developing real, robust relationships It means finding common ground and managing points of differentiation. It means doing genuine, old-fashioned, people-to-people diplomacy. President Biden epitomizes that approach. He believes in considering every diplomatic tool in the toolkit, including bringing stronger language and tougher tactics to the table when needed. You can be assured that will be my approach too if I'm fortunate enough to be confirmed. Of all of our diplomatic tools, perhaps our most powerful instrument is the United Nations itself. The UN is uniquely poised to take on our shared global challenges, from countering terrorism to promoting the rights of women and girls to feeding tens of millions living on the brink of famine. As Ralph Bunch put it in his Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, the United Nations is the greatest peace organization ever dedicated to the salvation of mankind's future on earth. But that's only true if America is leading the way. When America shows up, when we are consistent and persistent, when we exert our influence in accordance to our values, the United Nations can be an indispensable institution for advancing peace, security, and our collective well-being. If instead we walk away from the table and allow others to fill the void, the global community suffers, and so do American interests. In particular, we know China is working across the UN system to drive an authoritarian agenda that stands in opposition to the founding values of the institution, American values. Their success depends on our continued withdrawal. That will not happen on my watch. From climate change to COVID-19, nonproliferation to mass migration, technological disruptions to human rights violations, today's problems are urgent, they are complex, and they are global. Meeting these challenges means meeting with our fellow nations, especially in the world's most important diplomatic forum. To that end, before I answer your questions, let me outline three key priorities that will guide my work as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations if confirmed. First, our leadership must be rooted in our core values – support for democracy, respect for universal human rights, and the promotion of peace and security. Second, we must have the courage to insist on reforms that make the U.N. efficient and effective. And third, As U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, if confirmed, I would seek to develop a strong partnership with this committee, which I've had the great pleasure of working with often throughout my career in the Foreign Service. I want the conversation and the collaboration we began today to continue throughout my service, and I look forward to answering
0: your questions. Thank you very much. Um, We are going to do questions now, and we're going to do a five-minute round, and I'm going to do it since the President has designated this as a Cabinet-level position. I will do what I've always done uh, with those, and we will do it on a seniority basis on the committee. I'm going to reserve my time, and with that, I am going to yield to Senator Menendez for questions.
3: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Madam Ambassador, uh, you gave a speech in 2019 at Savannah State on U.S. and China trade and investment in Africa that has been brought to my attention as well as to many other members. The chairman has referenced it. Now, I know from your history that you are a strong believer in democracy, good governance, human rights, and anti-corruption efforts. And I know that you fought for those values in Africa. So, uh, I think you're pretty much aware of uh, the concerns that some have raised about uh, the speech you gave. I'd like to give you an opportunity to speak to the committee about the speech, explain why you agreed to deliver it, and discuss any aspects of the substance that you'd like to take a moment to address.
4: Thank you, Senator, for giving me this opportunity. Uh, First, let me say that I strongly support Congress's crackdown on the Confucius Institute and the work that many of the committee have done on on this issue. And, yes, uh, Senator Reich, I did read your report last night, so I do have bags under under my eyes. Uh, I have a long track record, as you've heard, uh, Senator Menendez, Menendez, speaking uh, about China's malign influence about the debt trap tactics that they have used in Africa and elsewhere. China is a strategic competitor and poses challenges to our security and to our prosperity and to our values. And China has engaged in gross human rights violations and has authoritarian ambitions that go against our democratic values. Much of the time that I spent on the continent of Africa was spent making the case to African countries about why they should partner on economic growth with the United States. As for the speech that I gave at Savannah uh, State University, which is the oldest historical black college and university in Georgia, and it has a goal of encouraging young people, particularly young black and brown Americans who are underrepresented in our foreign service to pursue careers and spread American values across the world. So I accepted that speech at a request from the university with the idea in mind that this would give me another opportunity to engage with young people. And part of my visit there was to engage with young people there to encourage them on uh, foreign affairs careers. Uh, truthfully, I wish I had not accepted the specific uh, invitations. And I came away from the experience frankly alarmed at the way the Confucius Institute uh, were engaging with the black community in Georgia. Uh, it reminded me of what I'd seen in Africa, the Chinese government going after those in need with fewer resources. I gave the speech as a speech on Africa, as a way of recommending to Africans how they can address their challenges with uh, with China. And Senator, if I'm confirmed, I commit to working with this committee to counter China at the UN, to fight against all efforts by the Chinese government to add harmful language to the U.N. resolutions and to resist China's efforts to overfill key U.N. positions with Chinese citizens. I also want to note that I have a very strong relationship across the African continent that I hope I can use to work closely with leaders to push back on China's self-interested and parasitic development goals in Africa, and I will urge those leaders to support American values uh, at the United Nations.
3: Thank you. Now, I did my own research, and this is not a new view for you. In 2007, over 14 years ago, you expressed concerns over China's rapidly increasing lending to poor nations in Africa, and you cited then in 2007, before many were even thinking about that, of the subversive concerns that that type of lending was creating uh, in, t- in African countries. In 2014, you encouraged African governments to understand why it is so important in their dealings with the Chinese that issues on human rights and political freedoms and press freedoms be considered. In 2013, you warned about China's increasing trade with African countries, saying that the U.S. needed to advocate for American companies and American businesses and to push for a level playing field. In 2019, while serving as a witness at the House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing on Africa, you warned of China's influence on the continent and stated that decreasing foreign aid would be ceding to China many of our national interests. In 2020, you entered into a joint op-ed in the Foreign Policy Manual in which you argued that the State Department paid too little attention to a rapidly changing international landscape in which geopolitical competition with a rising China and a resurging Russia was accelerating. Uh, This is a long-held view. Am I correct in that?
4: You are correct, sir.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Senator Menendez, for that uh, history. And uh, with that, let me say uh, I think that uh, your observation that you were surprised or shocked, I think is how you put it, is to China's uh, influence through these uh, Confucius Institutes on the campus where you gave that speech. Some good may come out of this yet in that uh, you know, this institution, Congress, has prohibited foreign governments from contributing to uh, political campaigns, and yet we allow them to contribute uh, generously in many instances to the uh, our institutions the, that we have of higher learning around the country that are so important to forming people's opinions, young people's opinions uh, when they go forward. So it may be time for this body to, to consider uh, whether or not it is appropriate to allow... Uh, foreign governments uh, like this to uh, to use that kind of uh, influence in our institutions of higher learning I think there'd be a robust debate on that amongst this body but uh, certainly uh, uh, the reasons why we don't allow it in politics may very well translate to uh, to the education system so some good may come out of your speech from October 19th of 2000 excuse me October 20th, 2019 yet with that uh, I will uh, turn over to Senator Rubio
5: Ambassador thank you for being here and thanks for your willingness to, to serve our country again you know, we're not going to. I hope we're not going to belabor the point. Other members may have questions, but I, I do think it's important to explore this speech a little further um, in October of, of 2019. And, and I've and I've heard both your statement here today, and also your, uh, the statement from um, a spokesperson uh, of President Biden about how you regret accepting the invitation. In addition to what you witnessed in terms of the predatory behavior um, uh, when you went down to, sp- to speak. I am, however, uh, and I hope you can address this. Uh, a bit puzzled. I mean, you you had a, prior to accepting the speech, you had a 35-year career in the U.S. Foreign Service, so certainly the Confucius Institute was not something you were unaware of, its existence, but going back to 2014, the Association of University Professors had issued a statement uh, expressing deep concern about the Confucius Institute as a threat to academic freedom uh, that they advocated China's state agenda, that uh, it, in their uh, recruitment and control of staff, their choice of curriculum, their restrictions on debate, and so forth. In 2018, I believe it was in response to a question from me on, in the Global Threats Hearing, uh, FBI Director Ray announced the FBI had concerns about the Confucius Institute. Um, and, and we're actually looking at, at the – so, I mean, the, the Confucius Institute and what they are doing in the U.S. as an element of soft power and or influence – It's not only been well-documented, but but also I would imagine that in the 35 years of of service to our country, it's something you had to have been aware of. Were you not aware of who the Confucius Institute was and the concerns about them when you accepted that speech?
4: Senator, I am not naive about uh, uh, China's malign influence, and I know uh, very well the activities of the Confucius uh, Institute. I did accept an invitation to speak at Savannah. I'd spoken there many times before. Uh, I spoke at their commencement address in 2014. I'd done a recruitment trip there when I was Director General of uh, the Foreign Service. So I accepted the invitation as a as a response to the university. What I was surprised about, not what uh, not the Confucius Institute. What I was surprised about. Uh, when I got there is that they had activities that went into our high schools, into our elementary schools, that I was not aware of. I did read Senator Portman's uh, report on the impact on education, and I saw um, uh, reference to that in in the report, but I had never seen it in person uh, in the United States. I'd seen it in Africa uh, for sure. Uh, and as I've said, I truly regret having accepted that invitation and having had my name associated
5: uh, with the Confucius Institute. Yeah, if if I could, and you'll correct me, is it fair to characterize it as follows, and that is that you accepted the speech as a favor uh, to an institution that you'll have a long history of interacting with as opposed to a direct invitation from the Confucius Institute per se? Uh,
4: That's exactly the truth, and I... uh, work uh, very, very um, committedly to get out the message about foreign affairs careers across uh, historical black colleges and universities as well as Hispanic universities because I strongly believe that our Foreign Service should be representative of America, and Savannah gave me the opportunity to do that. And again, uh, the fact that this was associated with uh, the Confucius Institute was uh, truly a a huge mistake on my part, uh, but it was not done as part of a Confucius Institute program. It was done so that I could continue my commitment to engage with uh, uh, historical black colleges and universities.
5: Were you paid to give that? I
4: was paid an honorarium by the university. Uh, It was an academic honorarium for my engagements with students.
5: Um, may I ask it, do you consider what's happening with Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, the, by the, the, what the Communist Party of, of, of China is doing there? Do you believe they're guilty of genocide?
4: What they're doing there has been referred to geno- uh, as genocide, and I know that uh, the State Department is reviewing that as we speak. Uh, what they're doing is horrific. Uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing the results of, of the review that's being being done, but certainly it
5: Well, there's, the State Department issued a designation, I believe, on the President's last day. So is your understanding that it's now being reviewed by the State Department to see if that's appropriate? Or?
4: I think the State Department is reviewing that now because all of the procedures were not followed, and I think that they're looking to make sure that they are followed to ensure that that designation uh, is held.
5: Okay. Thank you. Oh, here it is. I apologize. He uh, stepped out and gave me the seniority card. I want to... Okay, Senator Cardin, on virtual. I'm with you, Mr.
6: Chairman. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate it very much. Uh, And and let me thank our nominee for her uh, incredible uh, service, uh, distinguished service on behalf of our country. And uh, thank you for your willingness to continue in public life, and we thank your family in regards to the Confucius centers, I think that's already been covered. But it's interesting that Savannah State, as long along with several other uh, academic centers, have terminated their relationship to these centers. So I, I think Chairman Rich's initial points. Uh, we see action being taken by academic centers recognizing uh, that, that, that the Confucius centers were used for propaganda. So uh, we're cl- we're pleased to see that action, and I certainly accept uh, your explanation of accepting an invitation from the Savannah State. I want to go on to some additional issues, because I think that issue has been pretty well covered. Uh, And that is, uh, we know of the historic discrimination at the United Nations in regards to the state of Israel. When you look at the uh, United Nations Human Rights Council, the only nation that's on the permanent agenda is Israel. And we know countries like Iran and others that have horrendous human rights records are only covered under a uh, general debate, so just share with me your views as to how you will represent the United States in helping one of our closest allies in the world, Israel, and its relationship at the United Nations uh, and including the Human Rights Council
4: uh, Thank you senator for uh, for that question and I do uh, un- understand that Savannah State has uh, uh, severed its relationship with the Confucius Institute. On the issue of Israel, President uh, Biden has been one of Israel's strongest supporters over the last 50 years of his career. Uh, you all know that quite well, and the president believes that our ties between uh, the ties between our two countries are rooted in our strategic interest uh, and our shared values. So. If I am confirmed as the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, I look forward to standing with Israel, standing against the unfair uh, targeting of of Israel, uh, the relentless resolutions that are proposed against uh, Israel unfairly, and I hope to work closely and look forward, in fact, to working closely uh, with the Israeli embassy, with the Israeli ambassador Uh, to work to bolster Israel's security and to expand economic opportunities for Israelis and Americans alike and widen the circle of peace. I think uh, it goes without saying that Israel has no closer friend than the United States, and I will reflect that in my actions at the United Nations.
6: Thank you. And The United Nations is is clearly the most important of the international organizations, but we find... The international community has done many things at different organizations that discriminate against Israel. So, our activity at the United Nations becomes even more important, including supporting Israel having a more uh, visible role at the United Nations in a positive way. So, I thank you for that commitment. I want to talk a moment about the Sustainable Development Goals. We don't talk enough about that in the Congress or among the American people. It's been a great success at the United Nations in advancing. Uh, uh, the end of poverty, and uh, gender equality, and so many different issues. I was particularly pleased about the sustainable development goal number 16 that deals with good governance, uh, recognizing that a country's efforts to root out corruption very much affects uh, the human rights and quality of life of people that live in that country. I want to uh, get your view as to what role the United States can play in not only supporting the Sustainable Development Goals, but making sure that the indexes that are used for success are actually utilized, and that we galvanize the international community uh, to support the efforts made at the United Nations to deal with these uh, humanitarian issues.
4: Good, thank you, Senator. And the UN plays a key role in the promotion of the Sustainable Goals. But the United States' role is even more important, and particularly as it relates to good governance, uh, which is goal number 16, as, as you noted. Our voice is the most important voice. And I will tell you that over the past four years, the U.S. presence, our leadership, and our voice has been missed on these key issues of good governance. So this is something that I intend to focus a great deal of attention on among the many priorities at the United Nations uh, to uh, look to how we can make the United Nations more effective and how they address the goals, how they report on uh, on their achievements, but also making sure that they actually accomplish what the international community uh, expects as it relates to the Sustainable Goals.
6: You've heard already some of our colleagues comment in regards to Iran. Iran's an extremely dangerous country. Uh, We have found a very embarrassing vote in the Security Council in regards to the ballistic missile issue. Uh, What uh, strategy will you use to engage our traditional allies and to work with China and Russia in order to isolate Iran and to make sure that they never become a nuclear weapons state?
4: President Biden has made uh, very clear, both during the campaign uh, and you heard it from Secretary Blinken here uh, when he testified last week, that we will work and make every effort to ensure that the Iranians do not gain access to a nuclear weapon. Unfortunately, over the past four years, we've seen a tremendous amount of backtracking since we pulled out of, of the agreement. And we will be working with our allies, uh, our friends, but we also have to work with other members of the Security Council to ensure that we hold Iran accountable. Uh, As the ambassador to the United Nations, if I'm confirmed, I will work across all of those areas – to ensure that we get the support of our allies, but to see where we can find common ground with the Russians and the Chinese to put more pressure on the Iranians to push them back into strict compliance.
6: Uh, thank you, and again, thank you for your willingness to serve our country and uh, and thank you for your your family's uh, understanding.
5: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman,
7: uh, Madam Ambassador, welcome. Uh, before I begin, I really do want to point out, I, I think your personal history, uh, your 35-year career, I think serves as an extraordinary example for every American. I really want to commend you on that. I appreciate that. And I was, I was kind of hoping I wouldn't have to ask a question on the Confucius Institute speech, but I think I have to. Um, in my briefing materials, I heard one of your explanations was that the speech was prepared by a staffer and you didn't really review it carefully. I mean, it's, it's only an eight-page hour 8, eight page speech, double-spaced. Is that an accurate uh, that,
4: that is not accurate, sir. Okay, so it, I, I generally write uh, all of my own speeches since I left uh, the State Department. I love the fact of having others write my speech, but after I left the State Department, I did not have a speech writer. I did ask uh, support staff to provide me uh, with some research, with numbers,
7: with statistics, but I write my own speeches, so I don't know where that came from. Okay, good. Well, that that actually I, I appreciate that. And mm-hmm. you know, there, obviously, there are things I don't agree with in that speech, but there's an awful lot that I do agree with. You know, we, we have ignored it, and and because of our vacuum of, of investment, other people come in. But w- one phrase in here, you say we are not in the new cold war. I think all of our eyes have been opened up. Uh, we hoped China would have taken a better path, been a been a benign force. You know, been a friendly uh, competitor as opposed to the malign force they are. What do you think the situation is between China and the United States right now if we're not in a Cold War? Because based on their threats in Hong Kong to Taiwan, uh, it's looking pretty threatening.
4: China is a strategic uh, adversary and their actions threaten our security, they threaten our values, and they threaten our way of life. And they are a threat to their neighbors and they are a threat Uh, across the globe. So I have no doubts in my mind about that. As I talk about that in the speech and referring to the Cold War, again, I'm referring to Africa, where Africa was sort of a pawn in the Cold War. And I want my conversation there was to say that Africans can no longer allow themselves to be a a pawn, that this is not a Cold War for them. They have to take control of, of their own uh, of their own futures. So my intent was not to refer to the U.S. and China, but to Africa's relationship with the U.S. and China.
7: I, I do appreciate your quoting the African proverb, when two elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers. I agree with that. Uh, in your written testimony, you're talking about how President uh, Biden believes, he, uh, considering every diplomatic tool in the tool, toolkit, including bringing stronger language and tougher tactics to the table. Um, it's easy to say, in a very complex world, a little bit more difficult to uh, follow that. Can you describe what kind of stronger language and tougher tactics we'd bring to the table? Let's start with China. In, in, you know, ha- keeping in mind the fact that when we have drawn bright red lines in the past and then done nothing when those lines are crossed, that's pretty dangerous. So you've got strong language. What, what, can you describe what the stronger language and tougher tactics would be toward, for example, China?
4: Good. Thank you for that question, Senator. The tougher language will be calling the Chinese out whenever we see them crossing uh, lines, particularly as it relates to uh, their aggressive tactics, uh, both here in the United States and across the globe, not giving them a pass, but making sure that the U.S. voice is heard clearly on, this, on any issue where we have concerns about uh, the Chinese. Uh, it also may mean that we have to use other instruments that, uh, that we have, uh, including the possibility of sanctions, including uh, the possibility of flexing our, 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 our muscles. None of us want to uh, 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 encourage or support a conflict, and that is not the intent here. The intent here is to encourage the Chinese to change their behavior.
7: There's an interesting op-ed written in the Wall Street Journal this morning. I was going to quick call up the author. I don't, don't have it in front of me, uh, talking about what we need to do collectively with Taiwan and the U.S. to develop a defensive posture to, to deter China from further aggression or potentially invasion of, of, uh, of Taiwan. I, I don't expect that you've read that, but uh, wh- what is your viewpoint in terms of what our position needs to be in terms of defense of Taiwan
4: Now, Taiwan is one of the strongest democracies in the region, and we need to support them as a democracy and stand by them as a democracy and provide them the security that they need to push against any
7: efforts by the Chinese to uh, uh, compromise their security. Does that include weapon sales and a more advanced posture in terms of our own defensive uh, capabilities?
4: You know, I have to leave that to uh, the the powers who make those kinds of decisions, but my uh, guess is yes, that would include uh, providing them with the wherewithal to also support their own security. Okay, again, th- thank
7: you for your willingness to serve in this capacity. Thank you, sir. Madam Shaheen.
8: Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ambassador. Um, thank you for being here this morning, and more importantly, thank you for your willingness to considered for this critical nomination at this very important time in the world. You and I had the opportunity to speak a few weeks ago, which I very much appreciated, and one of the issues we talked about was the importance of empowering women as being a value that we should support in our foreign policy. And one of those aspects of empowering women has to do with women's health and ensuring that women have access to a full range of health care. If confirmed, you'll oversee the seat that the U.S. mission to the U.N. has on the executive board of U.N.F.P.A. As you know, that organization serves as the world's principal multilateral provider of family planning and reproductive health services and the largest global provider of maternal health care in humanitarian emergencies. But despite this, um, the previous administration used unfounded claims to deny U.S. funding for U.N.F.P.A., if you're confirmed, will you commit to working with the Office of Management and Budget to expeditiously release the funding Congress appropriated in December for fiscal year 2021? Absolutely, Senator. Thank you. And as you think about um, this position, will you also commit to working to restore American leadership in addressing um values around empowering women and helping to ensure that women have access to um, a full range of reproductive health services that they need if they are going to play a significant role in to advance their education, participate in the economy, support their families and communities, all of that is related to women's health care.
4: Uh, Senator, I can commit to you that I will be a leader on this issue. Uh, in New York is an issue that is personally uh, a priority uh, for me,
8: and I'll look forward to working with you to advance our goals in this area. Thank you very much. Um, You talked in your opening statement about a resurging Russia, and one of the things we are seeing right now is mass demonstrations, some of the largest we've seen in recent years, Um, and, of course, Russia has jailed Alexei Navalny upon his return to the country. Russia, of course, is anytime the United States makes a statement about um, what's happening there with respect to demonstrations and attacking demonstrators and um, repressing democratic activities, they accuse the United States of being behind those activities. As you think about this issue in your role at the UN, How do you counterbalance that? How do you build the support that we need there to respond to what Russia is doing when they're attacking us for being behind what's going on in the country?
4: That's the diplomacy of the United Nations. Um, I heard yesterday on the news as I was preparing that President uh, Biden spoke to Vladimir uh, Putin yesterday, and uh, that it was a very tough conversation. Uh, It's clear uh, to us that Russian actions against the U.S. have been aggressive, and they have been adversarial. And we do have to respond uh, aggressively uh, to, to their actions. At the same time, we have to find a way to work with them in the Security Council on issues where we have common interests. Uh, I will look forward uh, to working with them on issues to, for example, address the situation in Iran, but I will not hesitate in my engagements with them to also press them on tough issues such as their interference in in our election, uh, such as their cyber attacks uh, against the United States, and uh, their own human rights Uh, violations against their own people, including what happened to Navalny.
8: Well, thank you. I also was very pleased to hear that that was a tough conversation and that President Biden took him on in terms of election interference, the disinformation, the cyber hacking of our government agencies, um, the bounties that they have put on our troops in Afghanistan, and a whole range of other aggressive activities and I hope that that will be a way that we will continue to move forward as you point out there are areas where we should work together I think the new start treaty is one of those but we need to take them on when they act aggressively towards the United States and it's refreshing to have a president who is going to do that thank you very
5: much thank you senator senator Romney is he on virtual I'm here can you
9: see Uh, me,
8: Mr. Chairman
5: we can hear you.
9: Well, good. That's the best part, anyway. Uh, there let you me go. Just uh, begin. There we go. Let me uh, uh, begin by saying uh, thank you the ambassador for uh, her service to our country over many years, uh, and for her willingness and the willingness of her family to support her in this uh, this new endeavor uh, to represent our nation to the world. Um, I uh, I was planning on spending some time talking about China and uh, and questioning. Uh, matters that have already been discussed in some depth. Uh, and, uh, and I do believe that, Ambassador, your comments with regards to your perspective on China itself and its intent uh, is very consistent with the, uh, the views of most of the members on this committee and, uh, and appreciate what you've, uh, what you've described. Let, let me ask a derivative question, which is uh, how has China's investment uh, strategy in China worked out, excuse me, in Africa, how has it worked out? For the African nations, and I know there are many nations, and you'll have various experiences from different nations. But as you look one by one, um, has it worked out well? One for the nations uh, themselves, and number two for China, has it uh, has it uh, fulfilled a purpose that they may have had intended uh, in making those investments?
4: Uh, Senator, thank you for that question, and the answer to that is that it has not uh, worked. Uh, for Africans, and it has not uh, worked in in the same way that the Chinese would have expected it to uh, to work. I have seen over the 35 years of my career an increased uh, amount of activity by the Chinese. But where, where they have failed, and we constantly see reports that indicate this, is that Africans still prefer, if at all possible, to work with the United States and we need to take advantage of that sentiment and be more proactive in our engagements on the African continent. When they have a choice, they choose us. Right now, unfortunately, they don't always have a choice uh, about where they go. So they're in deep debt uh, to, to the Chinese for many of the projects that the Chinese have provided, uh, they have to deal with their own citizens who are uncomfortable about the presence of, of the Chinese. As I travel to, through Africa, I hear it on a regular basis. As Chinese are bringing their own workers, they're not engaging with, uh, with the uh, population. And some of the work that they're doing is substandard. And they have to deal with that, including having put the futures of their children in, in debt. So I, if, if I'm confirmed... One of the areas that I intend to work very aggressively on is engaging with my colleagues across the African continent and trying to address some of the issues that they're facing in dealing with the Chinese, but also pushing a more proactive uh, engagement by the United States with Africa.
9: Thank you, Ambassador. I, I, would, I would note that I asked a question about uh, the experience of Africa Uh, in part because of your extensive involvement there. But I would note that China is making the same effort uh, or a similar effort in Latin America, uh, in the Caribbean, uh, particularly in the Pacific. Uh, I spoke recently with an individual who was on a flight to Tonga, uh, and he said that there were three Westerners on the flight, and the rest of the flight was filled with Chinese uh, who were going to various projects in Tonga. Uh, So this is an issue which uh, which is worldwide in scope. And of course, we have a challenge in that China is making an investment not to get a return on investment financially, but to get a return on investment economically, geopolitically, uh, militarily, uh, and and they're, they're, uh, they therefore have a very different calculation than we do. And how how we compete with that, I think, is a is a question that you and the administration are going you know, to want to consider. Uh, in, in the brief time I have, I would I would note that I know there's great interest to reverse many of the policies of the uh, Trump administration but i would i would hope that in looking at iran that that before you jettison the maximum pressure campaign that president trump put in place that you consider just what the circumstances are in iran today i don't know what they are but i w- but i would hope that we would look very carefully with our intelligence agencies to determine what is the state of the, the health of the leaders of iran the, the people of iran what do they feel about the leadership uh, how open are they to a change in Uh, in in, uh, the the posture of the nation for nuclearization. Uh, What what is the level of their economic activity? Uh, How much are they hurting? Uh, Because I would would hate to give them a lifeline just at a point when they might be willing to take a different course. Because obviously if we go back to the structure of the JCPOA, uh, the the timeline for them becoming nuclear is basically expiring and they can become nuclear. So I, I I would hope that you and other members of the administration Take a very careful look before we uh, before we abandon the course that we're on, and and perhaps as you as you uh, have set a, a new course. Thank you, Ambassador. I know my time is up, and appreciate the chance to uh, has been, spoken with you again today. Thank you, Senator. Senator Coons.
2: Thank you, um, Senator Rubio, and thank you to the Chairman and ranking members. Thank you, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, for your willingness to continue uh, your distinguished service to our nation. I am so excited for the opportunity to work with you in the years ahead and to continue the areas in which we've been able to partner in the past. Uh, Let me just ask uh, up front, since you'll be taking the helm, I hope, uh, of our U.S. mission in New York after four years of an administration that largely rejected multilateralism, um, do you think uh, our owing the United Nations over a billion dollars in arrears uh, helps us uh, to establish American leadership, helps us to engage in all the different U.N.-related entities Um, or institutions, or does that hurt us in some ways in achieving our values and securities objectives through the United Nations system?
4: Senator, thank you so much for that question. Working to uh, address these issues will be one of my highest priorities uh, in New York, if I'm confirmed. Not paying our bills really does diminish our power, and it diminishes our uh, leadership. We need to pay our bills to have a seat at the table. And our leadership is needed at the table. We know that when we cede our leadership, others jump in very quickly to fill the void. And we need to make sure that we are there to push back on those who would have malign um, uh, intentions at the United Nations so that An ambassador we if i if i might
2: interests. forgive me we have very little time i've yeah. just three more minutes yeah. uh, ambassador if i might i was encouraged to hear in your opening statement your commitment to reform and transparency a lot of uh, un funding is dedicated to peacekeeping we have both visited with and seen peacekeeping missions from liberia to sudan across the continent and around the world some of them have been incredibly uh, essential and well-run. Some of them have been profoundly flawed. I look forward, uh, as a member of the Appropriation Subcommittee, that funds uh, our work around the world to working with you on that reform. I'm concerned about a spike in violence in Darfur and Sudan um, seeming to head in the wrong direction uh, after UNAMID, the peacekeeping mission, was drawn down. Um, is that also a topic of concern to you? Could you briefly speak to the path forward in peacekeeping?
4: Uh, it is absolutely a concern uh, for us. Uh, the UN's responsibility is to provide protection, and hopefully the new UN uh, force uh, presence will help to address the issues in Darfur, but it's something that I will be looking very closely at.
2: Senator Romney mentioned, and I couldn't agree more, that the United States and China are engaged in a significant strategic competition, not just across the continent of Africa, but across the entire developing world. And as you said, um, we have both sat with African leaders. Uh, My first such conversation was, in fact, in Liberia, where they've expressed a desire to work with the United States, but we're not offering the financing, the terms, the engagement that China is. I worked hard to get the Development Finance Corporation uh, stood up and authorized. It's just finished its first year of operation. Um, Do you view the DFC as a powerful new tool that allows the United States um, to deliver private sector financing with U.S. government partnership in the developing world that can compete with the debt trap diplomacy China is offering by offering financing on more transparent terms that are more sustainable and that better respect um, the decision-making priorities of our developing nation partners?
4: Uh, Senator, the simple answer to that question is absolutely, and I thank you profusely uh, for pushing forward the DFC. I think it's going to be transformative on the continent of Africa and across the globe, and uh, we will see the impact in the future.
2: Um, Today is World Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, One of my pressing concerns at the United Nations has been the isolation of Israel and the ways in which uh, Israel has been Um, singled out and often, I think, mistreated at the United Nations. Um, That has led some to advocate our withdrawal from UN entities. And uh, Fora, you've said when we're not at the table, others rush in. Uh, I think that's correct and we should re-engage. Do you think there's a way we can deepen relations between Israel and the developing world um, that will take advantage of the opportunity we have for Israel's unique uh, public health and development skills to bridge some of those divides at the United Nations?
4: I will look forward to working with the Israelis and trying to develop a strategy with them for engaging with countries that would appreciate having uh, Israel's expertise uh, to support their own development efforts. I'm hopeful that those countries who have recognized Israel under the Abraham Accord will also see some opportunities to be more cooperative at the United Nations and more supportive of Israel's uh, presence there.
2: As you've referenced, uh, China is aggressive, uh, not just diplomatically, not just economically, but also directly at the United Nations. Chinese nationals now lead four of the 15 UN specialized agencies. They've made a strategic investment, a coordinated effort um, to influence global governance. Nowhere is this more important than in intellectual property. China missed 3G and 4G. They have no intention of missing 5G. The last administration's fights around Huawei and ZTE – uh, I thought were appropriate, and their pressure on China for its uh, IP theft and its innovation mercantilism I supported. I disagreed with some of their tactics, but the broader strategy I thought was important. And the Patent and Trademark Office Director, Andre Yankou, mobilized our allies to ensure a Chinese national did not get chosen to lead the World Intellectual Property Organization. Our contest with China, which is a strategic adversary, as you correctly perceive them to be, includes fights over IP in standard-setting boards. Do you intend to raise this as an issue within the Biden administration to advocate for an assertive, a muscular, and an engaged U.S. IP diplomacy as well?
7: Uh,
4: Absolutely. And across the board for the United Nations, I will be fighting to ensure that either Americans or like-minded allies or hold those significant positions.
2: Well, thank you for your thoughtful and candid responses and for your long service to our nation. I hope our committee and the Senate will promptly confirm you and look forward to working together.
5: Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Senator Barrasso is not online, right? Senator Portman, are you on? Senator Young? Virtual?
6: Senator Barassa is up next. Assuming Graham doesn't show up, so it should
5: be Barassa, Murphy,
6: and then you. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. And then Wayne sent
5: you. I think we have like a phone tap going somewhere. All right, well, then we'll move on. Senator Murphy's here. Senator Murphy. Sorry, go ahead, Senator Murphy. Is your mic on? Yeah. It's a-
10: All right. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Thank you very much, Ambassador, for your years of service and your willingness to step up and serve again in this role. Um, I wanted to uh, first talk about the uh, situation today in Yemen. Secretary Blinken uh, last week committed to ending U.S. support for the military campaign um, led by Saudi Arabia in Yemen. But in 2015, the Security Council passed a resolution which essentially at the time endorsed all of the Saudis' demands at the uh, onset of their intervention. And it really has constrained our ability to negotiate an end to the war. That resolution uh, seeks the return of President Hadi. I think everybody who knows anything about this conflict understands that there will have to be some transition away from President Hadi in order to gain a peace deal. It demands that the Houthis withdraw from all of the areas that they've seized and it really only recognizes two parties to the conflict. Um, In other words, it ignores the role of Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Iran. Um, These are all pretty outdated and unrealistic demands. Um, And so my question is, will you commit to seeking an updated Security Council resolution to replace uh, this one, twenty-two sixteen, and what steps are you contemplating to uh, try to work through the UN to bring an end to this conflict as soon as possible? Uh,
4: thank you, sir. And let me just start by saying that the situation in Yemen uh, is uh, horrific. It is one of the uh, worst humanitarian crises that we're facing uh, right now. And so we need to aggressively move forward to address finding a solution, a negotiated solution uh, to this situation. Uh, Yemen is being used uh, by both the Saudis and and the Iranians who have contributed to to the war. And so I think it is incumbent on us in uh, New York, if I'm confirmed uh, there, to address this this issue uh, at the Security Council.
10: And again, I would specifically request that you review the existing resolution. I absolutely It is unworkable, I think, on its present terms. Um, I want to stay in the region and ask you a specific question with respect to humanitarian access in Syria. Um, In 2020, the UN Security Council failed to reauthorize uh UN agencies continued usage of three of the four border crossings. Uh the final border crossing is uh, essentially up for expiration this year. Uh so I just want to ask whether you will work Uh, towards the immediate reauthorization of the crossings that we lost in 2020 and work to reassure that we continue to have access to the remaining crossing. Um, With this sort of limited ability to get relief into Syria, you can uh, imagine the crisis um, that already exists getting substantially, horrifically worse.
4: Uh, Senator, thank you for raising that. And uh, you may not be aware because we talk so much about my career in Africa. I spent more than half of my career working on humanitarian uh, affairs, and I will commit to ensuring that we find a way to open up uh, those avenues so that humanitarian assistance can get to the most needy people on, um, uh, in Syria.
10: Uh, and uh, lastly, um, let me turn to the World Health Organization. When, when we talk about the WHO up here, we tend to always lead with the same phrase or a version of it. Um, the WHO is in need of reform. It has to change. But, and then we fill in the blanks of all the wonderful things the WHO has done. I, I would suggest that we flip that presumption. Um, the WHO is a miracle. Um, It has eliminated smallpox. It has saved millions of lives through the vaccination of poor people all across the world. It is a a forum through which adversaries and enemies uh, can come together and talk about shared public health challenges. Yes, it is no different than any other international organization in that it doesn't often work as effectively as we would like. But there is no way for the United States to help Rebuild an international anti pandemic infrastructure without the WHO. And while we should certainly talk about reform, we should also celebrate the unique capabilities that the WHO provides us. Um, and I uh, imagine you share at least part of my analysis, and you believe that there is no way for us to stop the next pandemic without being an active participant in the WHO.
4: Uh, I absolutely agree with you. I know that you are aware that the President did rejoin uh, WHO or stop our exit from WHO because we realize how important a role that organization plays around the globe.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Unfortunately, human nature is such that uh, people remember your gaffes, uh, no matter how much good that you 've done and i i 've talked with uh, Dr. Tedros and his uh, group uh, at length, and they they acknowledge things are were different with the pandemic than uh, than and than uh, like you say, miraculous things that they 've done as far as smallpox polio, and AIDS are concerned and and certainly uh, the, the bill that you and I have introduced uh, uh, to try to do the reforms that are needed, I think will be helpful in that regard, and we'll go back to being uh, talking about their miraculous uh, work. So, uh, with that, uh, let's turn to Senator Barrasso. Are you with us virtually? Apparently not. Uh, we'll uh, turn to Senator Portman, who I'm told is with us virtually. Senator Portman, are you there?
11: I am, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, uh, I enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate your answers to questions today. You and I talked quite a bit about your speech uh, at the Confucius Institute. And As I told you, we've done a lot of work on Confucius Institutes here in the Senate, and we have uh, now forwarded to you our report, uh, which I hope you will take a look at, at least the executive summary, to get a sense of what the Confucius Institutes have been up to around the country. And uh, you talked in that speech about Uh, their work in Africa, I know this is something that has been discussed already at the hearing, I won't go into great detail. But I think one of the things that's important to talk about is not just their increased diplomatic presence there, but increased exports of things like the mass surveillance and technology exports uh, to the African continent that are being used in China to persecute ethnic and religious minorities, including the Uyghurs. So I I would hope that um, the conversations today would lead you to be uh, an even more forceful advocate for our interests and, and pushing back against what China is doing, not just in Africa, a continent you know well, but uh, other uh, democracies uh, across, across the, the world. Let me just ask you the question, do you believe that the Chinese investment and engagement in Africa is in the best interest of the African nations?
4: Senator, not always. Uh, but as I have said uh, earlier, the needs are extraordinary in Africa, and we need to work uh, with the Africans to ensure that there are other avenues, other sources for them to get the things that they require.
11: And you and I talked about in, in, including in that um, improving our diplomatic presence uh, in, the, in the region, uh, as well as other parts of the world, Latin America and parts of, parts of Asia, uh, where there is a, a fierce competition right now, not just for exports um, uh, but for um, influence that uh, you know is is ultimately the competition between the great powers as to what political systems work best. We believe in democracy. Uh, do you have thoughts on that
4: uh, I do, and it is not just Africa. I, I apologize that I have a tendency to focus just on on, on Africa, but I know that this is a much bigger. A uh, uh, much much bigger job uh... we really need to ramp up and i spoke about this in in the article that bill burns and i did for foreign affairs that we have to ramp up our efforts we have to improve our own diplomatic presence to ensure that we have people on the ground who can counter uh... china all over the world and uh... it's going to require uh working with uh, Secretary Blinken, uh, working with uh, this committee, uh, working with uh, funders to ensure that the State Department gets the resources that it needs so that it can be more aggressive in its response to uh, China's aggressive actions across the globe.
11: In your role at the United Nations, should you be confirmed, uh, there will be lots of opportunities to uh, take on the issues uh, related to The great powers china russia uh and you know their efforts in the u.n to to try to promote their interests there will also be uh, a lot of pressure on you with regard to israel and israel as the uh, strong ally of the united states in in the middle east and sole uh, democracy in that region uh, you know is something that uh, here in the senate we have strong views on the abraham accords uh, i believe were an historic achievement and can help transform the middle east into a new era of prosperity and, and peace uh, yet the u.n general assembly found time in 2020 to condemn israel 17 times uh, compared by the way with six condemnations for the rest of the world in its entirety so um I, I wonder if you could talk a little about your commitment to defending israel from some of these condemnations um and also talk about the bds issues, you and I have discussed the boycott, divestment, and sanction issues, where there's a double standard being applied often, Uh, how would you use your position to advance the progress that was made in the Abraham Accords and uh, and to support and strengthen Israel's position?
4: Senator, thank you uh, again. You know, I see the Abraham Accords as offering us uh, an opportunity uh, to work in a different way with the countries who have recognized uh, Israel. And again, as I mentioned earlier, we need to push those countries to change their approach uh, at the United Nations. If they're going to recognize Israel in the Abraham Accords, they need to recognize Israel's rights at the United Nations. And I will use my perch, if I'm confirmed as the U.N. ambassador, to push uh, them on this effort. I intend to work closely uh, with the Israeli ambassador uh... with my colleagues across the globe because this is not just an issue uh... at in new york but also pushing uh... Our, our colleagues to address these issues with their countries bilaterally so that we can get a better uh... recognition of israel uh... in in new york
11: well thank you have a bds in particular what do you and BDS
4: design? exactly we did talk a bit about that uh... yesterday I find the actions and the approach that BDS uh, has taken toward Israel unacceptable. Uh, It verges on anti-Semitism, and it is important that they not be allowed to have a a voice at the United Nations, and I intend to work very strongly against that.
11: Senator Booker and I have a bill uh, regarding normalization of relations with Israel. It basically requires the State Department to include in their annual report, uh, not just uh, human rights abuses, uh, but also examples of Arab government efforts to undermine people-to-people engagement with Israel. And our notion is to try to spread this Abraham Accord uh, dialogue beyond the countries that have signed up uh, into a broader normalization of of relations. Uh, That's something you could be very helpful with at the United Nations. Uh, Would you be supportive of that? Uh, I will. Great.
0: Thank you, Senator Portman.
11: Good luck you. to you, and uh, I, I assume that uh, after the hearing today, um, you, know, you, will, you will be uh, successful on the floor and look forward to
0: working with you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Senator Portman.
12: Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair and Madam Ambassador. I'm going to say something I've never said to a nominee for any position. Um, I tried your recipe this weekend, and I really liked it. The ambassador was interviewed about her gumbo recipe, which she's used in diplomatic circles. And she said, "I don't have a recipe, but here's how I do it." That led to an article in the food section of the Richmond Times-Dispatch last Thursday. And my wife and I tried it this weekend, and I'm so glad it's good because we made such an enormous quantity of it that we're going to be eating it for the next month. But never it, said that before the hearing. It freezes, I thought I'd start there. It freezes well. It does freeze very well. Um, Senator Koons mentioned today's International Holocaust Remembrance Day, which was pursuant to a UN resolution in 2007-2008 to educate about the Holocaust, to condemn Holocaust denial, and also to hopefully, through education, forestall future Holocaust. Pope Francis gave a kind of an impromptu talk earlier today saying we would fool ourselves if we thought okay. Holocaust is only a rearview mirror issue. There are conditions in the world that could lead to it today or in the future. And I wanted to just ask about one of your earlier answers. Senator Rubio asked you the question about whether you viewed the persecution of the Uyghurs as genocide. And you are right to be careful about words because you're a diplomat. We sometimes on this side of the aisle aren't so careful. And you said the designation of the Trump administration of the genocide is being reviewed by the State Department to determine whether it meets the criteria that we use for assigning that term. However, I wanted to make sure that the, your, your reticence about that was just we want to go through the process and not a reticence about the evidence. I mean, I think the evidence is overwhelming that the Chinese government is undertaking this massive campaign of surveillance, uh, con- imprisoning people in re education camps, separating children from their families, forced sterilizations, <laughs> and they're doing that in a way that seems intentionally designed or would reasonably likely is going to have the effect of trying to destroy this Turkic cultural identity or Muslim religious identity. So your reticence on that answer wasn't about a disagreement about this evidence, correct? It's just about making sure that we follow the the process to do such a designation. Am I right about that? Uh,
4: absolutely, sir. What is happening with the Uyghurs uh, is horrendous, and we have to recognize it for what it is. I lived through and experienced and witnessed a genocide in Rwanda. Uh, so I know what it looks like, and I know what it feels like. And this feels like that. We just have to call it for what it is.
12: Thank you very much for that answer. I appreciate it. Um, this, the issue of, of the U.S. participation in the various U.N. Um, organizations is something that I'm interested in. Um, obviously... The Trump administration withdrew from the World Health Organization, the UN Human Rights Council, cut funding to the UN Population Fund, UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, withdrew from the Global Compact for Migration, and also UNESCO. I tend to believe that these institutions, though painfully annoying often, they work better for the U.S. and for the world if the U.S. is there rather than if we're not. And I had a conversation with the um, U.N. Uh, comm- High Commissioner uh, on Human Rights in Geneva in March 2019, and she pointed out to me the commission itself is often completely vexing, and include, especially on this anti-Israel bias that they have. But she says the effect of the U.S. pulling away is it gets worse, um, and other issues that the U.S. puts on the radar screen, like LGBT equality, which wouldn't have been on the human rights radar screen in the U.N., but for the U.S., they then become sort of non-issues when we're not okay. around. So h- how do we kind of address the reality of these institutions are often annoying and we don't like what they do, but they get worse if the U.S. isn't there? And how do you, you know, balance that as you should you be confirmed as the U.N. ambassador?
4: Uh, First and foremost, we need to be there. Uh, President Biden has indicated that we will uh, run to rejoin the Human Rights Council in Geneva because we know, again, when we're at the table, there are fewer resolutions against Israel. Uh, We can push back on human rights violators who want to be legitimized by sitting at the table. We can encourage our allies who are like minded to join the human rights commission we can support their elections and we can work from inside to make the organization better if we're on the outside we have no voice and that goes across the board whether it's unesco whether it's funding to UNRWA, uh, whether it's how uh... we deal with the w-h-o we need to be at the table to ensure that the reforms that are important that support our values are are addressed and we push back on those who might not
0: uh, support our values. Great.
12: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair.
0: Thank you. We're going to go a little out of order because uh, some of the members have other uh, things going on. So, Senator Cruz, if you'd be kind enough to uh, take this time.
13: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ms. Thomas-Greenfield, congratulations. Welcome. Thank you. I have for a long time believed that the single greatest geopolitical threat facing the United States is China, and the communist government in China is a profoundly malign influence. I am also growing increasingly concerned over the last two weeks by a pattern among Biden administration nominees of consistently moving towards and embracing the Chinese Communist Party. That pattern became even worse this morning in an article that broke in the Washington Post that described a speech you gave just a little over a year ago in October of 2019 to a Confucius Institute. Confucius Institutes are paid for by the Chinese Communist government. We have had repeated problems of espionage and propaganda. That's why the Chinese Communist government funds Confucius Institutes. Congress has passed bipartisan legislation cracking down on Confucius Institutes, legislation I authored that passed Congress with overwhelming bipartisan support. At the same time that the United States Congress and the United States government is acting to combat the spying, the espionage, the propaganda coming from Confucius Institutes, run and controlled by the Chinese Communist government. According to the Washington Post, you were apparently going to a Confucius Institute, giving a paid speech, and and praising China. How do you reconcile those two?
4: Uh, Senator, thank you for asking that question again. And I have addressed uh, some of these issues uh, earlier on in this hearing. I went to Savannah State University at the request of Savannah State, a historical black college that I have had a long-term relationship with uh, to give a speech on Africa and U.S. Uh, and China policy toward Africa. I got a $1,500 honorarium from the university uh, for spending several days engaging with their students talking to their students about careers in the Foreign Service, talking about uh, issues uh, related to Africa. I expressed to this committee early on my strong and, frankly, um, uh, unacceptable uh, uh, what I saw in terms of what uh, the Confucius Institute was doing in Georgia. I saw them engaging in poor black communities with, uh, with uh, the poorest of, of, of people. It is the same thing that I've seen in Africa, and I was appalled by it. And I've expressed my strong regret for having given that particular speech at uh, Savannah University. And if I had it to do all over again, I would not have accepted. I have spoken about China for 35 years of my career working across the continent. In 2005, I raised the concern about the Chinese sending back North Korean defectors to certain death. I have raised concerns about how the Chinese engage in Africa and how their malign uh, influences and their efforts have undermined the prosperity of of the African people. And I see what they're doing at the United Nations as undermining our values, undermining what we believe in. Uh, they're undermining our security. They're undermining our people, and we need to work against that. So I appreciate you raising that for me again, and I want to say in no uncertain terms that I look forward to working with this body to address these issues. You've taken some incredible steps, uh, such as and seeing some of the reports that this body has taken related to China, and I support all of those steps, and I will be working aggressively against Chinese malign efforts in New York.
13: So you've said you were horrified by seeing firsthand what the Confucius Institute was doing. Did you keep the money?
4: Uh, I can tell you what I did with the money. Uh, I give a tremendous amount of my very meager resources to humanitarian efforts and so you did keep the money
13: though you you didn't give it back
4: I I did I did not give it back it was not from the Confucius Institute it was from Savannah State University. Now
13: you also describe you said you've spoken out against China's abusive practices Um, perhaps you have elsewhere uh, but I can tell you I'm holding the speech you gave at the Confucius Institute and I can't find a single word of criticism in this speech This speech is cheerleading for the Chinese Communist Party. You praise the Belt and Road Initiative. You praise their entrapping developing countries uh, in debt bondage. And you say the United States should follow China's model. Is it the role of America's UN ambassador to be cheering on the Chinese Communist Party at the expense of the developing world and at the expense of America?
4: Uh, Senator, it was not my intention, uh, nor I, do I think that I cheered on the uh, Chinese Communist Party. Uh, what I recommended in that speech is that Africans need to open their eyes on how they deal with the Chinese, and I would like to see the United States government do more in Africa to compete with uh, the Chinese.
13: My, my, my final question, did, did you have even a word of criticism about the Chinese Communist Party, about its murders, about its tortures, about its concentration camps, about its genocide? Did you have even a word of criticism in the speech you gave at the Confucius Institute? Uh,
4: I spoke about human rights there. Uh, That's the speech, but you don't see my other engagements uh, with students who ask questions that I answered frankly. And uh, I don't ignore human rights. I talk about the fact that Africans like but, our values, but in values. the
13: speech, did you address human rights? Uh,
4: I did. Human rights is referred to as something that we promote in the United States. W- what, did w- what did you say I, about human rights in That are our values.
13: What did you say? I
4: mean, in my discussions with, uh, with Africans, but, but the I appreciate didn't have what anything. you're saying. I'm not denying this. As I said, I regret this. I, you know, this is one speech in my 35 year career, and I do regret that speech, but if you look at what I have done prior to that, there is no question that I understand. I am not at all naive about what the Chinese are doing, and I have called them out on a regular basis, including today.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cruz. Uh, next, I have uh, Senator Markey on my list. Is Senator Markey with us? Huh?
14: Yeah, I'm, I'm right here, Mr. Chairman. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, uh, but my question, uh, my first question goes to um, the Trump administration's attitudes about uh, climate change and how China and other countries, as a result, uh, were able to lower their uh, own um, gaze in terms of the constellation of possibilities to be able to deal with the climate crisis and uh, the consequent uh, refugee crisis. Um, So in order to really lead here, the United States uh, has to step up, the United States is going to have to be dealing with this climate crisis and uh, with the partnership ultimately we need with China and other countries, but uh, China and the United States, of course, are going to have to be uh, leading uh, because of the refugee crisis that uh, uh, has been created and will only intensify uh, in the years ahead. Uh, could you speak uh, to that issue of uh, the refugee crisis uh, and the role you believe the United States uh, Ambassador to the United Nations should be playing in highlighting and leading on that issue?
4: Uh, Senator, I mentioned earlier before, uh, before you came on that I spent more than half of my career working on refugee and humanitarian issues, and I do intend Uh, for that to be one of my many priorities at the uh, United Nations, raising uh, concerns about how we respond and how we support and how we provide protection and solutions to refugees. And sometimes we tend to think of refugees having been produced by war and conflict, but there are many refugees who are being produced as a consequence of climatic changes in, uh, in their countries. We're seeing the Sahara Desert move rapidly southward, and people are being affected by that. And I intend, if I'm confirmed as, as the ambassador, to work uh, very, very closely uh, with other members of the Security Council and at the General Assembly to raise this issue and how we might uh, find solutions.
14: Yeah, and uh, when General Gordon Sullivan, the, uh, the uh, Army uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, General, testified before me in 2007, uh, and he was in charge at the time of, um, of the incidents in Somalia, he testified that it was a drought that led to a famine that then led to battles between different groups over more scarce resources, and he saw, obviously, what was happening, uh, uh, and it led to Black Hawk Down to, in... Uh, that, uh, that he felt responsible for, but he could see more clearly in retrospect that it was definitely climate-related and a national security issue. So uh, I thank you for that. Um, in, terms of, uh, uh, in terms of the, the COVID-19 uh, vaccine, uh, America's health, uh, health is uh, global health, and global health is the health of the United States. We're all interrelated on this issue. What role do you believe the United States should be playing and ensuring that there is an equitable distribution of the COVID-19 uh, vaccines uh, to countries regardless of wealth.
4: Uh, thank you again, Senator. I mean, we're dealing with a pandemic. Uh, this means it, it's, it's a, a global uh, situation. And so it has to be addressed in a global way. And I know that President Biden has made the decision that we will uh, uh, join the COVAX uh, group and support efforts to provide the vaccine uh, across uh, across the globe. Uh, we can't close ourselves off from uh, from the world, and so if the world is still dealing with this pandemic, we we have to support them.
14: Okay, thank you. Um, and um, under President Trump's watch, North Korea's nuclear weapons and ballistic missile programs grew. Um, can Can you give us your view in terms of how you would uh, re-engage with our U.S. allies, how you would ensure that there is more uh, pressure put on uh, China and Russia uh, so that we uh, ensure that North Korea returns to its uh, nuclear non-proliferation um, uh, obligations?
4: Uh, we certainly have to re-engage with our allies. Again, this is not something we can do alone. And this is, I think, one of the, the, uh, the biggest failings of, uh, of the Trump administration, is that they did try to go it alone, and our allies were left kind of holding the bag. So reengaging with South Korea and with Japan, as well as with China and Russia, uh, particularly to push uh, for their respect of, of the sanctions uh, regime in, uh, uh, against North Korea, is going to be really important. And the locus for those discussions uh, will be uh, in New York at the United Nations, in addition uh, at more high-level uh, engagements by the President and the Secretary of State.
14: Uh, thank you. Uh, and I'd like to just turn quickly, if I can, to Ethiopia um, uh, in this um, battle that has now broken out between the um, government uh, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, the Liberation Front. Uh, It's causing widespread displacement of people inside of Ethiopia and thousands uh, of refugees pouring into neighboring Sudan. Uh, The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has raised concerns about reports of mass atrocities uh, uh, on the ground. Uh, Can you speak to that issue and what role you believe that uh, the United States and the UN should be playing uh, in order to resolve this conflict peacefully?
4: Uh, the situation in Ethiopia, Senator, uh, has me very concerned. Uh, three years ago, we were celebrating this country. We were celebrating uh, uh, their uh, new president. Uh, we were celebrating the possibilities of, uh, of their being able to move forward and build prosperity for their people. And now they are in the middle of a war against their own people. Uh, it is important uh, that the United Nations uh, take this situation on and look at uh, how we can be responsive. The humanitarian situation is really uh, worrisome. So we need to open up uh, 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 possibilities for humanitarian uh, workers and organizations to get in to see what is happening uh, in the Tigray region. And then we need to uh, have, I think, a very uh, Frank uh, and uh, an open discussion uh, with the president about what is happening uh, with the prime minister of Ethiopia, about what is happening there, and uh, insist that uh, they take every measure to stop what they're doing, to stop the fighting, and uh, bring this situation to to a close. Uh, it is having a broad impact across the region.
0: Thank, thank I, think you, your, I think your
14: background makes you the perfect person to make sure that uh, our, the U.S. plays a role in making sure this, this does not spread further into the haunt of Africa. Uh, I think you will be a great uh, representative for our country. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Senator Markey. we will turn to Senator Young. No
15: well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Madam Ambassador, welcome to the committee. Chinese leadership of specialized agencies, its influence peddling to secure leadership positions, and its failure to abide by the basic codes of decency are all problems facing the United States now, today, within the United Nations system. If confirmed, how will you use the power of America's vote and voice on the Security Council to hold China accountable for its behavior within the United Nations and beyond? Uh,
4: Senator, thank you for that question. And I see that as uh, my highest priority, uh, if I'm confirmed, uh, at the United Nations, and that is to push against uh, Chinese influence in the Security Council. Uh, and it will mean working with our allies and bringing them on board and getting their support to push back uh, against the Chinese. And, as I said earlier, calling them out every opportunity that we have uh, on their efforts to, to have greater influence on, uh, on the United Nations and to bring a set of values to the United Nations that does not fit the organization that we all support.
15: So I, let's tease that out, and I'm going to unpack that a little bit. So you'll work with partners and allies to apply greater leverage. That makes some sense to me. How will you approach this differently than the previous administration? And and you'll note that uh, the most recent ambassador to the United Nations was sanctioned by the Chinese Communist Party because she was too forceful on these issues. So. Um, what will you do differently in this capacity than has been done by the previous administration?
4: I, I commend uh, Ambassador Kraft for her extraordinary work in uh, in New York uh, and uh, I have uh, engaged with her and look forward to continuing to engage with her on what she was able to achieve uh, effectively and follow through. On, on her achievements. But I think one of the failings of the administration, and I don't think it was any fault of hers, uh, was that we didn't engage our partners. We didn't bring our allies in, in, in with us. We didn't have uh, discussions with them. Uh, so we need to, if we're going to succeed, we have to do it uh, hand in hand with like-minded uh, countries, and I intend to aggressively and, and relentlessly pursue working with those who are like-minded, uh, ensure that they understand we're not ignoring them. We want them as partners, and we know that we can only succeed if we have their support.
15: So, Madam Ambassador, I would note that in the Obama administration, which preceded, of course, the the Trump administration, uh, we had the People's Republic of China ripping off our intellectual property, forcing technology transfer, engaging in human rights abuses, uh, really the same litany of challenges we're still dealing with. Uh, Did they, too, fail to make... Uh, deepening and broadening our alliance system and and leveraging that alliance system to bring China into a position of good behavior. Do they fail to make that a high priority?
4: I know having served in the administration that uh, fighting against China was a high priority of the Obama administration. The pivot to Asia was about addressing uh, the situation with China. But how China is behaving, behaving now is very, very different uh, uh, than that period, and they've become more aggressive. And so we have to change our approach, uh, and we have to make our approach more strategic, and that is, that is our t- intention.
15: I think there was some conversation earlier in response to uh, questions by my colleagues pertaining to uh, the United Nations uh, budget and uh, our dues. The United States remains uh, the largest funder of the United Nations. Correct? That's correct. Okay. So we're going to maintain a lot of leverage, just uh, on account of, of of that fact. Presumably, would you agree with that?
4: Uh, I do agree with that, but we also have to pay our dues if our, if if our influence is going to continue.
15: So you don't you don't think that. Dues can also be one of these instruments uh, that will give us greater leverage. I do, the
4: I do believe that dues are important, and I, I believe that we need to pay our dues so that we can continue to exert our influence.
15: Okay, but should those dues be tied to uh, results uh, or, or or behavior of of uh, the, you know those within the UN system at all? Just trying to get clarity on, yeah, on your
4: position. We, we really do have to demand uh, reforms in the U.N. system. We have to work within that system to ensure that those reforms are on the table and that we're pushing those reforms uh, forward. We have to encourage the U.N. to be more efficient and more effective. Uh, we have to push for whistleblower protections for those who will provide uh, the needed information. I think information. I'm out of
15: time. Oh, respectfully sorry. madam ambassador i regret i'm out of time it sounds to me like there's some strategic ambiguity which uh i think is smart so um it sounds like you may be willing uh to use dues as a tool uh to bring uh some members of the un the un system into a position of better behavior and fulfilling their mission which is kind of what the previous administration attempted to do thank you
0: thank you senator, Young. Thank you. senator Merkley. are you with us virtually
16: i am indeed the yours. Uh, greetings, Madam Ambassador, uh, and thank you for your testimony today. I wanted to start by asking about the Security Council itself. At the same time that China and Russia often stymie action in the Security Council, the Security Council is increasingly representative of the geopolitical landscape, with key powers like India, Germany, Japan not included as permanent members. How do you approach the question of the Security Council? How do you consider that perhaps it needs to be reformed? How do you believe it can be made more effective and functional?
4: You know, I think there is general agreement across the board that reforms are needed um, on the Security Council. What those reforms will be and how uh, they will be implemented I think remains to be uh, decided. Uh, but, uh, you know, changing uh, the number of members that happen, we moved from 11 to 15 uh, uh, some years ago, uh, and there are uh, efforts to push for uh, more permanent uh, members, uh, and those discussions are, are ongoing.
16: Do you think uh, India, Germany, Japan should be members?
4: You know, I think there has been some uh, discussions about them being uh, members of the Security Council, and uh, there are some strong arguments for that. But I also know that there are others who who disagree uh, within their regions uh, that they should be the representative of their their region. Uh, That, too, is an ongoing discussion.
16: Ambassador, uh, President Biden has said that he is going to hold a summit for democracy, which I love that he plans to do this. And I think he's planning to to hold it after COVID is in under control in a way that enables uh, key leaders from around the world to come to the United States. Is this something you'll be deeply involved in helping to plan? And what do you see as the ways that that, that summit can really highlight uh, the power of democratic republics working together around the world to address issues. Uh,
4: Senator, uh, thank you. That is something I truly support. Uh, What we've seen happen over the past few years is some decrease and diminishment in uh, uh, democracies around the world. And we need to boost those democracies up. They need to see the United States as the strong democracy uh, that they have all wanted to emulate. And I think this uh, summit that the president is planning to host will be an opportunity for us to highlight our successes, highlight and, and talk about some of our failings and how we have addressed those uh, to ensure that our country continues to
16: thrive. Do you think there are any particular issues that should, should be major themes at that gathering should it be consideration of the challenges of forced labor refugees lgbt rights genocide uh, what would be your priorities for that discussion
4: I, I, I haven't had a discussion with the president on exactly the areas that he wants to focus on i do think that we need to focus on uh... transparent elections and fair elections uh... across the world we need to talk about Uh, uh, how to engage uh, oppositions. And we do need to talk about human rights, uh, press freedoms, and all of those values that are important uh, to a democracy.
16: Ambassador, perhaps the most important issue facing the world is to prevent our planet from being destroyed by climate chaos. And the United Nations is a place where a lot of discussions can take place and a lot of planning uh, to tackle that. Do you see that as a major role for the United Nations and for your leadership representing America there?
4: Uh, I do, sir, and I look forward to working with uh, Secretary uh, Kerry, who is the president's special envoy for climate. That says how, uh, what a high priority this is for the administration. And my work in, in uh, the UN, if I'm confirmed, will be to support his efforts.
16: Uh, well, thank you. I was going to ask you how you saw that kind of uh, relative responsibility. I picture the two of you uh, working very closely together to help tackle this. I appreciated the president's pledge to aim at 100 percent clean energy economy, net zero emissions by 2050. I think that is the right goal for humanity if we're going to uh, stop the steady advance of calamities or stemming from the, the uh warming planet uh, certainly i see those in my home state but we see them on the international scale and including the impact on the availability of food the disasters and in, involving uh, uh sea seashore greater storms more powerful storms uh, forest fires etc so uh it is the any of those particular issues like the impact on refugees uh ones that that kind of are highest on the list for the U.N. to address? Or can the U.N. actually take on issues like ending the subsidies for fossil fuel development around the world?
4: Uh, The U.N. has focused very um, uh, steadily on issues related to the environment and climate. As you know, the Secretary General has determined that this is uh, one of his goals. Uh, The month of February, the U.K. uh, government is chairing uh, the Security Council and climate is one of the issues that they have on their agenda, and I will uh, tell you that uh, the President and uh, Secretary uh, Kerry uh, int- intend to host a, a climate uh, conference uh, probably as soon as uh, as soon as April. So this will be something that we will focus on at the United Nations, but it's also something we will focus uh, around the globe on.
0: Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir, awesome. Thank
16: Thank you, are we out of time? We are. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Senator Merkley. Uh, Senator Booker, thank you for your usual patience. The floor is yours.
17: I, I appreciate that, uh, Chairman, and so good to see you uh, here thank today. You. I, I uh, watched the whole um, hearing on, on uh, my television in my office and uh, was really appreciative with, with generous spirit on both sides of the aisle and the substance of the question. I, I did hear one colleague, though, uh, refer to Biden administration's nominees as embracing China. I think was that, that was the exact wording. And I found that just patently unfair and untrue. And then I heard one speech being taken in a way that was patently offensive to me at a moment that we just had a siege on the Capitol. And I would actually say that of all the members here, of this committee there's not one that doesn't have something in a speech in their past that they regret doing as this person has said especially at a time that we see people whipped up to storm a capital and the perpetuation of baseless lies that an election that was won by seven million votes was a fraud and so I'm I am particularly galled that in the spirit of bipartisanship which we usually have that you were uh, treated like you were recently about one speech that you had already thoroughly explained to numerous members. And the generosity of some of my friends on the other side of the aisle was pointed very clearly. You were invited to give a speech by an HBCU. Now, some of my colleagues might not know this. I have buckets of invitations of speeches where I get speech invitations that I prioritize. If you're a New Jersey university, you got me. <laughs> if you are one of my alma maters, you got me. But when I get a call from an HBCU, I would imagine to the nominee you know the sacred importance of HBCUs. You know that they are the number one producer in America of black generals, number one producer in America of black doctors, number one producer in America of black professors, PhDs, and so forth. In fact, if there is a hope for this country ever to reach equality in all the ranks of all the professions, would you agree with me that the HBCUs are still that hope?
4: Without a doubt, Senator, thank you very much. Yes,
17: and and as a person who has two generations before me going to HBCUs, the fact that you accepted an invitation from a black college to give a speech, to me, shows that you have the right priority list, because I will tell you this, our State Department ranks are woefully lacking in African Americans. When I travel the globe and visit embassies, They are woefully lacking. We are now at a period where we've had a a black vice president, first woman as well, first woman treasurer. You are one of the generations of women that are breaking down barriers and showing the way for women and African-Americans. I I imagine your commitment to continue to do that is the same, yes. Yes. Absolutely. Now, the other thing that just galled me a little bit it was the fact that Senator Menendez, my senior senator, who is friend and mentor to me, read a whole list through your research, Senator Menendez, of examples for I think ten to twenty years of you being a canary in the coal mine, making warnings about China, China's activities in Africa, and so to the Senator Menendez, who I rarely. Ever tell him what to do. So I'll ask him, could you introduce that litany into the record in a formal way so that it is there forever? I'd be happy to. Thank you very much. So I just want you to know I am celebrating that you are sitting before me right now because I know the challenges we still have in this country. And I watched after George Floyd was savagely murdered how it wasn't just all 50 states of America that came out and protested, but we saw other nations, right? At least a dozen other countries because they know that the United States of America, if we can make our values true here, there's hope for the world. Would you agree with that? Yes, sir. So I I have 30 seconds left and I apologize for using all my time. Uh, but I just want you to know for my ancestors, for communities of color all around the world who wonder if this nation will ever achieve itself, will ever get to a point where we can be a country where we celebrate the richness of our diversity, not just in words, but in positions of leadership, where we achieve our potential. As past generations saw when they brought hidden figures out of the shadows, and sat them together with NASA astronauts and literally defied gravity, that you today, sitting in that seat, are a reason to rejoice. And your record is unapproachable in your patriotism to this country under Democratic uh, uh, and Republican administrations. I thank you, I celebrate you, and I will submit my questions for the record in hopes that you will give me that response I yield to you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, thank, thank you, you, Senator. Senator Menendez. Uh,
3: well, oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I'm always loath to go after my junior senator because his oratory flies high and has great substance to it, and I echo everything he had to say. I just want to very briefly, Ambassador. Uh, you know, uh, after um, forty. Um, 45, 46 years of public service, um, I've seen how people can read into whatever they want to read into. Um, But I look at that same speech that has been questioned by our colleague, particularly Senator Cruz, in a way that suggests that it's nefarious. Uh, It seems to me when you were saying in that speech about a win-win situation, you were playing a little jujitsu challenging China to promote values such as good governance, gender, equity, and the rule of law. Am I confused?
4: No, sir. That's exactly uh, my – that was exactly my intention.
3: And it seemed to me a challenge to them when you say, well, why can't China share in those values? That's a challenge to China. And when you criticize Chinese predatory lending, which you have – for years but you also rang the alarm bell if we do not show up as predatory as their lending may be and you are in dire need guess what will happen and so it's a wake up call you've been al- uh, you've been sounding the alarm for and this particular uh, element for over a decade saying hey you we don't show up the rest of the world doesn't show up China shows up. Guess what's going to happen? Is that a fair statement?
4: That is, sir.
3: And then finally, uh, when you were the Director General, uh, I was the Chairman at the time, did it not press you very hard for diversity in the State Department?
4: I still have bruises, sir. You, you did press me hard, and I took you seriously, and it is still a commitment that I – have, even though I left the du- Director General's
3: job. And, I, and for- I would hope you would show that diversity at the U.N. upon confirmation. But that was the main reason you went to Savannah State University, for which you had a relationship, right? Yes. And it was Savannah State University that invited you to speak. Is it not the case? Yes. And as a matter of fact, it was Savannah State University that provided you the small uh, honorarium. Is it not the case? Yes, sir. And it is not true that Savannah State University closed its Confucius Institute last it year? It did. I think that's a great record. Let me ask Mr. Chairman, I ask the unanimous consent to enter enormous numbers of letters of support for the nominee into the hearing record, and due to COVID precautions, we will email the letters to the committee's clerk.
0: They will be entered. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Well, uh, thank you so much uh, for your patience uh, being with us today. We uh, uh, certainly been uh, an interesting hearing and uh, look forward to working with you over the years to come. And uh, again, thank you for your willingness to serve and your, and your family's willingness uh, to sacrifice with you. Before closing, I'd like to ask unanimous consent that all responses to my prehearing questions be added to the record. For the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business tomorrow, Thursday, January 28th at 5 p.m., including for members to submit questions for the record. We'd uh, strongly urge you to respond to those as uh, rapidly as you can, uh, Madam Ambassador. And uh, with that, the committee is
6: adjourned.